Episode 53, Epilogue, Part 3. Hi, this is Dragnacarta, DM for Curse of Strahd, Twice Bitten. You're listening to the Twice Bitten Podcast, a campaign where five Curse of Strahd DMs head back into the mists for a hauntingly familiar adventure. Starring Jack as Metreon, Kaya as Lillison, Linus as Amity, Serena as Kiva, and Twy as Deer. You can catch the horror live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Twitch at twitch.tv slash rcurseofstrahd, or watch new episodes every Monday on YouTube at youtube.com slash c slash rcurseofstrahd. You can also listen to new episodes of this podcast weekly at anchor.fm slash twice-bitten, or wherever you like to syndicate your podcasts. Now, let's get right to Ravenloft. One by one, or two by two at times, your group finds yourself splitting apart as you approach Neverwinter, the Sword Coast, the Tribor Wood where first you began this journey. And one by one, you find your separate ways across the land. But somehow, even apart, somehow less alone than when the five of you first met one another around a campfire ever so long ago. Lillison, you traverse for days down woodland paths and hilly countryside until you at last find yourself at a familiar mansion. A two-story, U-shaped manor, set back from the edge of the familiar town of Corinton. The main stone house towering tall and proudly above the countryside around, and the weathered wooden wings on either side. And, of course, a familiar round stone tower at one end of the wings that rises three stories. The moss that clings to the top of the central house not quite crested upon its windows or ordered stone just yet. Do you enter? Lillison is going to enter as stealthily as possible. Okay. By what means of entrance? Um, she is actually going to linger by the round tower, cast blink, and wait until she can project herself onto the other side. And blink you do, without too long to wait, appearing rapidly within the tower. And as you do, you can hear very faintly coming from the main central manor, the sound of clinking silverware and quiet conversation. You look out through the door toward the main part of the house, through the wings, and you can see candles lit outside the window, the dusk beginning to approach. It seems there's an evening meal occurring elsewhere in the manor. Lillison knows these halls. She knows where to creep and where to press herself against the wall. And now that she can do this, she knows how to uh, 
project herself onto the other side of the wall uh, as long as Blink is up. Um, and she does her best, you know, just as she did, just as she and her brothers did when they were children too small to know better to get to the main family area uh, being un, you know, unseen and unheard as long as possible. Are you looking to eavesdrop? Uh, eavesdrop briefly, yes. Sure. The first thing you hear is a familiar deep male's voice, and you hear a number of different sets of clinking silverware, a number of different voices. It seems that there aren't only two people here. You sound a few, you're a few familiar ones, a few unfamiliar, but you hear one man's voice very well known to you. Deep and somewhat prideful, but you can just imagine the tactical glint in his eye. And it's absolutely abominable. More than a month, nearly six weeks without word. And for what? This school, they said that, well, I was promised transparency, and it seems that, well, we're getting certainly less than that. Why, they've had the nerve to say she didn't even arrive. Can you believe it? When next I receive one of their messages, I have half a mind to write promptly back. If nothing else, I think that I can promise that should their ineptitude continue, they might no longer enjoy the patronage that they've enjoyed thus far. And if I find that anything in their utter abominable negligence has happened, and there's a quiet moment as you hear a clink of glasses and you think that he's taking a drink of something, and then a clink as a glass is set down. I can assure you that they will have hell to pay. Lillison breathes. She wishes that she had brought Leaf Lip Siege with her, just like a very quick, foolish thought. But uh, she had left him safely, you know, back in the town itself in... Uh, probably like you know one of the nicer taverns um and she knocks lightly on the door that separates where she is standing from where they are does your family have a butler probably yes okay then there's a pause and then you hear a familiar woman's voice say, Who is that, dear? One of the servants still cleaning? Then, No, I don't believe so. Get that, will you? And then you hear footsteps approaching, and the door opens, and you see a familiar, then abruptly pale and somewhat shocked-looking face of your family's butler. And as your silhouette stands there in the open door, silence falls across the room beyond. You see a number of individuals, some known to you as friends of your family, others strange to you, perhaps business partners of sorts. Altogether, seven or eight individuals in addition to two that you know very well. Toward 
at one end of the table to the left, a elegant elven woman with black hair turning blue with the tips, a blue-gray collared tunic with gold trim and vivid blue eyes. Her eyes immediately widen. And at that, you hear a sharp, sharp intake of breath, muffled, but not quite so muffled as for your own keen ears not to hear it. And from the opposite head of the table, a broad-chested man with salt and pepper hair that ends in a top knot, a thin beard across his cheeks and chin, wearing a black tunic and cloak lined with subtle bronze trim. As your mother, Eloin, and father, Asades, both stare at you, wide-eyed. There's... A very long pause. A silence that waits to be broken. Ah, apologies, I did not realize you had company. I have... Things to talk about, but I can wait. Mercedes' eyes widen, and your father, without missing a beat, pushes his chair back and stands from the table. My apologies, but if all of you except Eluin would please await us in the parlor. There is a brief muffled buzz of discussion, and then the guests stand up and file out. And as soon as the door closes behind the last guest, he steps forward. I am assuming that you are, in fact, my daughter and not an assassin bearing her face. Would I be correct in assuming so? She smiles a little bit. Um, it's a, probably a more genuine smile than any of the other PCs I've seen before. That seems to be correct for now. He raises an eyebrow. I confess that we weren't expecting the pleasure of your return, though might I say that it is sorely welcome. I would hope to understand more, however, if you would oblige. Was this a matter of a kidnapping? Were you expelled? I'm afraid we've been quite in the dark for a number of time. A, a, a kidnapping of a sort? Um, <clears throat> I, um, I don't know if you will believe me. I have some, um pieces of, of corroborating proof, but, uh, well, my traveling companions and I, we were swept off to, um, a different plane, and we've been, uh, fighting for our lives against a vampire lord for some time, and we've just recently escaped. I... And she shows the luck blade, um, and you know, starts patting herself frantically and like pulling out uh, like any of the other magic items that she's picked up since then. And there's, uh, I liberated um, his accountant from, and brought him with me. He's, he's in town now. He's very good at, at keeping track of all of the things that we, we looted. I, I think he might be- He holds be... up a hand. A question for Kaya. How yes. high? is a Sadie's insight score. 
probably very high. He eyes you for a long, tense moment. He glances over the blade in your hands, eyebrow raised at the mention of the accountant, and says, turning, raising his voice, calling the butler's name. Fetch hot food and fresh drink. Our daughter has returned. And he turns back to you. It has a small, confused look as eyebrows knit together, but a spark of keen interest in his eyes. And he says more quietly, Did you escape? Or is the blade in your hand merely for entertainment? We slew him and we escaped. My daughter, the Vampire Slayer. Now this is a story I must hear. And you actually think there's a hint of a smile. And usually when you've seen your father smile, it's a businessman's smile. A charismatic grin, a bark of friendly laughter, but there's something different here. And he gestures to a seat at his right-hand side of the table. Why don't you have a seat? By the look of your wear, you've come a long, long way. Before the rest of the guests come back in, uh, Lilith. Oh, they're not coming back in. They're still outside. Oh, okay, well... This is now a three-person meal. Before they come back in, then, which is uh, which is to say, right now, um, she is actually going to run up to him and just give him a big hug, um, and there are tears streaming down her face, and she is fully prepared to have him, you know, recoil because, uh, you know, her touch has been death for a long time. He halfway winces up front, and then. You can almost hear the gears clicking in the back of his head. And he says very quietly, stroking your hair, Would I be wrong in hazarding a guess that more has happened and that you've done more in the past several weeks than the mere slaying of an undead abomination? There's been... There's been a lot. Well, the night is still young, and we have plenty of time for stories. But for now, and he actually returns the hug, somewhat awkwardly, but says, Should I ask whether you intend to return to the school, or whether you are returned here I don't know yet I there's there's a lot to consider well why don't you tell me a little more about what these past weeks have been for you and perhaps I can share some news regarding 
the family business that you might find interesting. And from there, well, we have time. Thank you so much for that, Dragna. You're very welcome. Shall we leave that there? Yeah. Okay. Next, let's say... Hmm, I'm going down my list. Shall we do... Well. I'll let Linus and Serena decide. Amity or Kiva, who's next? Go ahead. Okay, yeah. Uh, if you're okay with that, yes, I will. Uh, let's go. Let's do it. Okay. Kiva, your own journey takes you off the beaten path through a number of more isolated villages beyond the more metropolitan areas that some of your companions may be frequenting. But eventually... You arrive outside of a familiar and welcome and yet unwelcome sight. A wooden cottage that looks older than it truly is. Less of a house and more of a wooden cage standing lifeless and broken. You can see before you the front door once proudly standing and painted, hanging off its hinges. And from here you can see that the insides have been ravaged. To the left, you can see the remains of a once beautiful garden now choked with weeds and grasses. And in this small corner of the meadowed wood, just beyond the settlement nearby, this place bears only silence and old memories. Yeah, uh, Kiva will... Um... I don't know. You don't need to tie off the the celestial fey horse, so um, <laughs> he'll wait. She, but she can communicate with it, which I love. Um, so she'll just tell the horse to wait. Uh, cat, please, and um, we'll go back. Uh, yeah, I guess she'll look through the house for a smidge first, just to see what has changed in her absence, and then uh, yeah, the house itself has not much of note here. The open windows unshuttered, the front door torn away, and the lack of upkeep. Well, the elements have not been kind, and nor have those that have likely visited, perhaps looting the remnants or sleeping on the floor, now patched and tattered with time. However, as you round the rear of the cottage, and approach the garden proper you hear beyond a set of overgrown weeds and tall underbrush what sounds like a small creature purring in the shadow of the cottage oh she'll go check that out very gently not trying to scare anything away but just trying to see what what it is following the sound you find yourself in a familiar nook toward the back of the garden, nestled in the arms of an overgrown lavender plant where a small flat stone lies above the soil. And 
curled around that stone, sleeping peacefully. A small black and white cat, its, whis its whispers rustling very faintly in the breeze as it naps in the sunny patch here at the back of the garden. And as the sound of your footsteps approach, crunching through the mulch, it opens one lazy eye and meows very quietly up at you. Thank you very much for keeping her safe. She's just going to hold out a hand, uh, see if the cat gives a little sniff. It does. It does. Gives a little sniff and then rubs its head up against your palm and just sits quietly off to the side watching. So without going into too much uh, detail <laughs> here, she will uh, unearth. The stone. Um, yeah, yeah. Start digging. Okay. The cat keeps you company in the time. At that night, for the first time in a long time, a child's and infant's happy cries ring out from the old husk of the cottage. The following days seem like a whirlwind, or tough to remember in retrospect, but you find yourself on the road once more, making a brief stopover in a friend's apothecary, who is surprised and overjoyed, at least once you get past the cosmetic issues, to see you. And now joined by a healthy, happy, burbling, rosy-cheeked baby swaddled in your arms. After seeing your friend Vanya off, you make your way to Neverwinter, doing your best to disregard the shocked reactions of those you pass to your undead visage. But eventually, you see the great walls of the city rising in the distance, people entering in and out of the great wooden gates, the towers, spires rising up above the keep, majestic against the backdrop of the cloudy sky. But in the twilight, the dusk, just beyond the walls to the east, you see something strange, a lazy sparkling river encircling a convoy of brightly painted wagons and colorful tents. And from even here, you can hear that the sound there is filled with the echo of children's laughter. Would you like to approach? Yeah, Kiva sort of keeps uh, Ava bundled up in her little papoose, and they, uh, they'll they approach the, the, the caravan. As you approach, the first stars of night twinkle above the apricot sunset, Giant dragonflies whirr overhead, trailing streamers, and a low mist curls over the ground. Through a floral archway, you glimpse wondrous and vibrant creatures, elven stilt walkers, dancing fairies, and painted performers. Everywhere there is laughter, pixie dust, bubbles, and the wistful tune of a whistling calliope. As you head for the entrance, you see a silver statue of a dancing fairy mounted on the roof of a ticket booth, surrounded by fluttering butterflies. The booth is decorated with an animated depiction of the night sky with shooting stars that arc across it. 
An elderly goblin perches behind the ticket counter, peering at you quizzically through a spyglass. He lowers the spyglass after a moment and calls out to you, Greetings, fair fairgoer. And he raises an eyebrow. But then perhaps a fairgoer that appears less than fair is more fair yet than the other fairgoers. I presume you both should be wanting a pair of tickets. Uh, yes, I suppose so. Uh, do the, do the tickets get you access to, to Mr. Witch and Mr. Light? Oh, my dear. Not to worry. I just about tickets, but, well, toddlers and babies in free, and as for you, <laughs> you are expected. Canterfoot! And at that, a tall, thin man wearing a green plated performer's skirt, a tall striped socks, pointed shoes, a lumpy green pointed hat, and a pair of strapped-on glittering butterfly wings snaps to attention beside the ticket booth as the goblin jerks his head toward him. Watch the ticket counter while I'm gone, won't you? I'm afraid Mr. Witch and Mr. Light have a guest. The man snaps off an awkward salute and heads into the ticket booth, kind of crouching to fit inside and is trying to cram his butterfly wings through. The goblin hops off of a stump toward you and holds up a hand. Nicholas Midnight, charmed. Kiva Cyrilai and uh, my daughter, Eva. It's lovely to meet you. A true pleasure. And what a wee little lass she is. Well, shall we make our way then? Kiva's just so amused and awestruck um, to wander into a place like this after a place like Barovia. So yeah, she's like gleefully following and bouncing Ava as she does. <laughs> Ava is giggling, burbling happily, looking around her, her stubby little fingers, tracing across the sky as the dragonflies whir overhead. You hear the distant sound of crackling, popping, not quite fireworks, but firecrackers perhaps, the jingling of bells. And as you head forward, leaving the ticket booth behind, you can hear a merry tune spilling forth from an instrument on the back of a brightly painted wagon. A monkey wearing a cloak covered with button turns a handle at the wagon's rear, sending music into the air from rows of golden whistles. As you watch, a goblin dressed as a ladybug toddles up to a fairgoer nearby, rattling a tin cup. And in the distance to the southeast, you can see the giant dragonflies once more, their massive wings sparkling in the twilight, twirling in a majestic dance as fairgoers laugh and cling to oversized saddles atop their backs. You pass a much larger tent, the roof reaching toward the night sky in three swooping peaks topped with spinning gold stars. Painted wooden panels on the tent walls whirling with colorful motion, displaying vibrant circus performances. The sound of music and laughter drift out through the canvas door. But instead of going within, you pass it by. Instead, as Mr. Midnight leads you toward a tangled wall of thorns surrounding a cluster of wagons just barely visible beyond. Nicholas stands before the thorns and clears his throat. <clears throat> and as you watch, the thorns begin to part, pulling away, forming an arched doorway through the wall of thorns, revealing the cluster of wagons illuminated by lantern light within. Nicholas, beckoning you, proceeds inside. Enclosed by the wall of thorns, you see a circle of eight brightly painted wagons, one of which a glass-enclosed water tank, the perimeter within, patrolled by what looks to be a bugbear, wearing a large jack-o'-lantern on his head, as one would wear a helmet, as well as a set of dungarees and fake fairy wings. He tosses a nod, 
in the goblin in yours direction and continues his marching patrol. He Nicholas leads you. Yes. Mm -hmm. So blown away by this. That's such a great description. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Loving it. And Nicholas smiles up toward you. Are you enjoying the carnival, my dear? Though I'm afraid that we're not really stopping by any of the attractions, I'm afraid. I'm sure uh, there will be time for that. It's just a far cry better than uh, what I'm used to seeing. <laughs> oh, and he quirks an eyebrow. My dear, if that's the case, then we shall have to ensure that you are well adapted to such sights. Then he pats you not unkindly on the arm. He leads you forward, approaching the largest wagon, which you see is painted in bright pinks and twilight lavenders with a roof shaped like a mushroom's cap. Sitting just outside the door in a small porch extruding from the wagon, you see an aging, heavyset clown wearing golden purple butterfly wings and big poofy stockings, blowing bubbles from a pipe. He offers you a small curt nod as you approach. And as you step up onto the stairs, the door swings open and Nicholas turns toward you with a small kind nod. They're waiting for you, my dear. Kiva uh, holds Ava a little tighter, not out of fear of harm, but just more excitement and she's the closest thing. So yeah, yeah she'll go inside. As soon as you step inside, you are almost blown away by a bursting silhouette that erupts in front of you. You're almost shocked for a moment, your adrenaline rushing, and then you see it is only a flamboyantly dressed elf wearing a pale white powder on his face and bright red blush, a red and white jester's cap striped like a candy cane, a colorful red and white outfit patterned with diamonds and holding in one hand a golden scepter with rubies and a carved glittering butterfly atop it. Welcome, my dear, we thought you would never arrive. There comes a clearing of a throat from behind him, and you see, sitting on the edge of a chair by a desk, a heavy-set, bald, dark-skinned elf wearing a three-piece amber pinstripe suit with a pale red vest, a prim and proper gray necktie and a rose pinned to his lapel beneath his gold-trimmed top hat, who glances down at a pocket watch in his palm and says, Nonsense, Mr. Light. I would say she's quite on time. Uh, did uh, Esmeralda... Tell you to expect me. Mr. Light, or sorry, Mr. Witch smiles. Our carnival was traveling when we met the most curious acquaintances on the road. We first feared it to be a particular old friend that we weren't quite ready to see, but it turned out to be a delightful tryst with the caravan of Vistani. They let us know that an elven swordswoman bearing a blade of sunlight in the face of a ghoul would appear to ask our aid in seeking passage to the domains of delight. Although must I say, my dear, that you look a sight more sightly than those unpleasant beasts. Be that true? Yes, indeed. I, uh, I left when I was an infant, uh, after my mother died, and, um, I wanted to see, I know they don't just let anyone back, and I, I just wanted to see if there was any family left, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys can help me with that. They exchange looks, and Mr. Light says, Well, I'm certain that we could certainly look into it. What would be the name of your family? Well, um, my my father's name was, uh, was Reese, but I... She gave me a name once. Uh, Larry was my mother, and, and her mother is, uh, Titania? 
Light's eyes go wide, and Witch's eyebrow quirks just a tad. And Witch smiles. Marvelous. Please, sit. We have much to discuss. And if you're okay with that, we'll leave it off there. I love it. I was perfect. Okay, who's next? Amity is next. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. Amity. You find your feet taking your way along your own trail through woods and paths, towns and villages. Is there anything you'd like to do along this journey? Um, passing through some small towns or cities on the way back home to Morning Fleet, Amity could see if there's uh, a customers for uh, the seance uh, ritual. Anyone who wants to maybe briefly see a loved one again. There do seem to be a number of takers. Is this something, uh, as you make your way through the towns and villages, you do in fact find a number of takers, people who are interested in speaking to loved ones to make amends to, at least in one case here where they buried the damn key to the family fortune. But each time you do, you can't help but feel that there's another spirit just hanging back on the outskirts of the crowds that you summon. Not quite brave enough to step forward, but just lingering beyond the mists that you seek through. Then after the the second time she gets this feeling, Amity is going to gulp in and go straight back to Morning Fleet. Arriving in town, riding on the back of a draft horse that she then uh, lets Polymorph back into its original wolf form for sending it away. It whines, licks your hand, and then scampers off into the woods. Uh, of course, she had been sending a few sendings to her mother, telling, uh, you know, it, it'll be uh, it, three days now. And so um, she goes straight home and... Uh, just uh, embrace his mom if she's there. Um, but something's on her mind. So before she tells the whole yarn of all the, all the labors of the last two weeks, she is going to perhaps excuse herself. There's something I need to do um, out back. Okay. And you're able to find your way to the comfortable, quiet yard just behind your family's home. And she actually wants to be alone for this, so after making sure no one else is uh, peering in, she is going to seance and see if she can contact that spirit, see if that is her sister, Anna. You lay lovingly and carefully each of the candles at the edges of the circle and begin summoning your will. And almost in the blink of an eye before you know it, the easiest 
connection you've made yet. You open your eyes, and there is a wispy tiefling child wearing a young girl's skirt standing just on the outside of the circle, looking quietly toward you. Hemity starts to tear up as she looks at uh, Anna's spirit. Does she look happy or uh, maybe confused or just is is she looking for an explanation? What what is she? Make an insight check. The DC is not high. All right. I well. Uh, I'm glad because I'm not good at insight. <laughs> Thirteen. That's more than enough. There is bewilderment, bewilderment, loneliness, and a deep sense of longing. I'm. I'm sorry, Anna. Come, come here. She shuffles forward, just quietly dragging her ghostly feet through the earth for not much little effect, but not quite meeting your eyes. And then she comes to a stop a few feet away from you. And there's a moment of silence before she says in a voice like the whispering of wind between trees, I wondered for so long if you'd followed me to the other side. I couldn't find you. I... I'm... Might not be. I will. I'm. I'm not going to be on the other side for a while yet. Um. And I'm. I'm. I'm so sorry for what I. I was a coward. I. I'm so glad. I can. Talk to you again. She sniffles. Are you going to leave me again? I... I can't stay here in this town forever. I... but... You, you, you were there when I was in the, the other towns. Will, will you be able to follow me around? Will I be able to talk to you? She looks up at you, and you see her eyes are glittering with unshed tears. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how all this works. But if I could, would you let me? Every day, yes. And any time. And, and even if I can't reach you, outside the, the town, in, in other countries, other worlds, I'll, I'll always come back here. 
She nods, as if weighing that. And then abruptly sobs, dashes forward, and wraps both arms around you. And strangely, despite her ethereal nature, you can feel her weight in your arms. And though you feel the chill of undeath and the grave within her, there's a warmth there. And in that moment, you can feel it burning, flickering with a light. Amity just holds on and lets the moment last forever. And forever it lasts, but forever it seems is not long enough. But from that night on, out of the corner of your eye, whenever you're going somewhere, traveling somewhere, or even turning in for sleep, you think you can almost see Anna's small silhouette watching, standing patiently, guarding. And with each day, the sound of her voice grows clearer. Until one day, it's almost as though there wasn't a veil at all. For others, of course. They're not sure who you're talking to. But you know. And Anna knows. Do you plan to stay long in town? I can't stay long in anywhere anymore. Um, I... A few weeks. Long enough to... Well feel like I'm home again. And then I'm, I, I'm sending back and forth every day with Deer. I feel like it might be time to go see where he lives. I'm just realizing now that communicating via sending is basically the equivalent of having a limited text message plan, but like worse, because you get like five a day. Sorry, disregard my mood-breaking <laughs> observation, but... <laughs> so, Emily, you're heading off to see Deer. Yes. Okay. You hit the road, bidding your mother a fond farewell, and the first night you rest out on this paths beyond your village, you're a little anxious to see whether that familiar silhouette will be there as you turn in for the night's rest. But as the campfire flickers casting soft moving shadows across the trees and rocks and grasses around you, the stars glittering overhead. There's a flash of a small silvery shadow in the woods nearby, and you fall asleep with a smile on your face, knowing that you're not traveling alone. You travel for a few days, a week, and at one night you find yourself in a small rural village with your funds, it's easy enough to find a warm bed for the night. But in the middle of the night, you awaken to find the lights of the tavern extinguished and the sound of many footsteps and muffled, frightened conversation coming from the tap room below you. Do you remain in your room? No, of course I'm going to go see what's what's all about. 
you descend the old creaky, comfortable wooden staircase, passing by old portraits and actually a rather nice-looking, lovingly mounted trout on a wooden board. And in the center of the space, you see a crowd of villagers anxiously murmuring, and many of them occasionally daring a glance out of a window before turning away, pale. And again and again you hear, she's back. She's back. My gods, what do we do? Uh, uh, I'm back? The innkeeper turns toward you, eyes wide. Don't go near the windows, lass. She's out and about tonight. It's not, it's, not, it's not safe for outsiders, or even those of us native here. Just head back up to your rooms, you'll be safe there. Amity smiles and approaches the counter. Um, as Anna, and I don't know if this is possible, if I can, if I can, you know, the telekinetic feed is, is all about this, uh, tosses a gold coin up and down beside her. Um, how about you tell me a little more about her? I'm sure Anna and I might be able to help you out. The tavern keeper's wide eyes glance down to the gold coin, bobbing up and down at your side. It's it's the weeping lady, miss. A, a fell apparition. She's haunted the town since the last new moon, and anyone who's dared approach her They've wound up dead, chilled to the bone, no blood left in the body. It's a terrible sight. Don't... Again, you'd best be go up to your rooms. It's, it's, it's not safe. Hmm. Well, all right. I'll go up to my room for now. Thank you for the warning. And as Amity goes up to her room, she sends a sending to her well-researched friend, Erthrandir, asking him if there's any, uh, just about, you know, the research of arcane beasts fitting the descriptions. Um, Would Erythrindir know that? Ready to... Give me your choice of an arcana or religion check. Oh, you know it. Seventeen. Sounds like a wraith. Or at the very least a specter, but given the descriptions of the more exsanguinatory means of attack it has, a wraith seems somewhat more likely. Probably a wraith. Sensitive to sunlight, undead, nasty business. But you got this. All right. And that night... Amity heads out of her room, out of the inn, locking the door behind her, to go on a little adventure. And as you step outside, you can see a few dozen yards away, a silvery-white ethereal form drifting across the square, wisps of hair and robes wavering in the air, and a soft sound of sharp morning sobs echoing in the chill wind. But the sound of your footsteps approaching, the form whirls, turn toward you, a sallow, sunken face, flashing black and gray and blue eyes, and an echoing voice that says, 
Who dares approach me in my grief? Amity, Amity Ariel, and, oh, sorry, I accidentally said Ariel's last name there, I actually meant Elvin. please don't read into this audience, uh, this is a mistake, but let's just leave it, Amity, uh, <laughs> what, you seem troubled, as Amity steps forward, prepared either for a fight, or for maybe, uh, peaceful negotiation. And I think if Linus are good with that, that's where we'll leave that off. I'm good with that. Okay. Arthur dear. I believe you were up next. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Okay. Leaving the rest of the group behind, you traverse toward a familiar old place leaving the trappings of civilization behind you and passing beyond the tree line into the woods, deep into the forest, until you find a crudely built, comfortable log cabin sitting nestled in a small hollow a few yards away from a running creek. The little mailbox by the door is resting there quietly. The door closed as you left it. It seems to have not degenerated too badly. In the time you've been gone. Earth looks over the old place and steps inside. And the moment he's in, he starts packing. Books and quilts are thrown haphazardly into a bag. He's trying to strap this abomination to his back, just getting everything he can. Except for a few things, notably. All those ugly old outfits, cargo pants, and a thousand little rain ranger things, his spare longbow. He leaves them inside. And then, when he's grabbed what few things of his that are here... He gives the place a mocking little salute and steps outside. And then he goes over to the well, draws up a bucket, and begins carefully pouring water all around the exterior of the house, sweeping away leaf litter and leaving the ground bare as he works for an hour or two. And then, when he's done, he steps back, raises his wand, and there's a tiny flickering bead of light. As he casts Fireball. It doesn't take long for the cabin covered in dry mosses, twigs nestled along the tiled roof to go up in flames. And as you sit there, you see the crackling sparks of the bonfire silhouetted against the darkness of the woods beyond and 
It seems almost a merry flame dancing and a celebration of what came before and a recognition of what comes after. Aerith watches it for a long few minutes and then steps away. He's got work to do. And where Aerith goes next is not wise. He knows it's not wise. But he can't really bring himself to care. It takes him a few months to get back into Thayan territory. Some bribes, traveling at night, and some guides, although eventually he realizes that he's both more powerful and more competent than any of those people ever could be, and he starts traveling alone. There's a few there's a few incidents. Patrols. But he's alright. And eventually he's back on a beach. It's not the one in his memory. Because that one hadn't been choked by debris and ash and war yet. The scars are still here, even a century later. Places where white sand has been blasted to glass. The hulls of great elven ships sticking out of the sticking out of the water. But it is his beach, nonetheless. And Aerith It's nearly sunset. And for a moment, Aerith checks to make sure he's quite alone. And then begins the familiar quiet dance of spell weaving. Using his new power to shape an illusion. And for just a moment, just a fleet, sparkling moment. The horizon in the distance isn't empty. There's towers. There's the spark of light, of laughter, of a hundred thousand people. And then Aerith shuts it off. The beach is dark again. And instead, he finds a place where there's been and he just settles onto the sand, looking out at the sky. After a while, 
he goes out when the sun's truly set. He finds an old boat sitting at the corner of a cove where P and friends left it a lifetime ago now. There's some work to mend the cracks in the hull and get rid of the seaweed, but soon he's paddling out on dark, quiet waters. And the stars. God, he'd forgotten how many stars there are. And Erthrandiri Ariel, once he's sure, as sure he's, as he's ever been, that he's alone, lies down and looks up at the sky. And for the first time in about a century, he actually lets himself cry. Not... It's embarrassing. It is utterly, utterly embarrassing, which is why he did it out here. But he's had enough of tears. And so he sits up. Pulling out that old Rowan wand. And dives into the water. And as he does, there's a shimmer as magic cocoons his body, surrounding it, wrapping around it. As he casts Alter Self. And dives into the waves. For a long while, that's all he does. His legs transformed into a mermaid's tail as he just lets himself drift, passing by wide-eyed fish and confused-looking turtles as he drifts. And when he's finally, finally had his fill, he surfaces back on the boat, gasping, lets the spell drop, and dries himself off. And then, to no one in particular, he says, I know it's silly, pretending that there's still something here. Kristoff, you'd tell me I was a damn idiot, and you'd be right. But I need to see. See where C met Sky again. Before I go to be the person I can be. Before I let you go. Before I let all of this go. Deer has one last thing to do 
he'll sleep in the boat tonight, and while it'll be uncomfortable, and the waves will rock and the gulls will scream, for now it's quiet. As he reaches into a waterproofed bag in his pack and finds a scroll, one written in Amity's careful, looping handwriting, and finds a shock of brilliant red hair tied together with a ribbon. As he smiles and lies back and uses her scroll to cast Dream. As you do, you feel yourself you feel yourself sinking into a true unconsciousness as you enter into a different mental space and feel before you an amorphous, shapeless mass of possibility. And on the other side of that drifting silvery cloud, the familiar consciousness slumbering for now but perhaps not for long. Not here, at least. Hey, MD. So, how'd the wraith go, darling? And if you don't oh. mind, I think we'll call that one there. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and we'll let them have their privacy. And finally, but certainly not least, Metreon. You find your boots taking you along a path toward more urban locales. One step leads to another and, well, the people, the people are wonderful. The party's raucous, the socializing, immaculate. And then one morning, sorry, not Metreon, Luce, you find yourself stirring awake as your eyes open as the slowly brightening light of the dawn shimmers in through the windows of the chamber you're in. Yeah, uh, he'll, he'll kind of stir awake. Uh, you've noticed that he is between two sleeping naked bodies. Uh, one of them is a muscular half-elf man uh, with reminiscent wavy blonde hair. Uh, the other is a slender, deeper-skinned woman, human, uh, with equally reminiscent curly dark hair. Um, but uh, he kind of pulls himself up uh, with a bed sheet covering himself up uh, and kind of wanders over to a, a, a nearby desk that's situated by these very grand, uh, almost floor-to-ceiling length windows that look over over the city in this penthouse suite. And just looks out at the slowly rising sun, just, uh, just with this kind of like listless expression in his eyes, uh, almost as if he's staring beyond the city. Uh, 
to somewhere else. And he said he's spent his time there for a good while. Uh, the bodies in the bed not moving, aside from just stirring occasionally. Um, but as he's sitting there, he's looking and scanning across the hotel room, and he notices that there's a wardrobe, uh, a, a very grand, fairly finely made wooden wardrobe. And on the front uh, of the door, which is kind of cracked open, there is a... Uh, a very tall, long mirror, and he can see himself in it. And he can see that uncertain expression in his eyes. Uh, he can see the, the tattoos, the ones that he, he had given himself back in that place uh, that still decorate his chest and his arm. Uh, he sees that gone is the headband, uh, his signature teal green headband. It's been replaced by a pair of uh, red satin panties. Um, and kind of shrugs them off and tosses them onto the bed at their owner. Um, and he sees also, as he's as he's staring in that direction, he sees hanging off the lip of the, the wardrobe door a uh, familiar, ornate, hand-carved and lacquered wooden mobile of uh, fluttering bats. And he gets up from the desk and, and moves across the the marble tiled floor and just kind of takes the head of the screaming bat face in his hand and uh he remembers the know-it-all yet high yet earnest high elf who gave it to him and he looks back in the mirror and sees himself and touches where his horns used to be uh, at this point his once mohawked white hair has now kind of grown out long and shaggy again um He's got kind of a fuller white beard that started to form. And he has a sudden burst of inspiration and he goes back to the desk and there's a stack of stationery. Um, and he quickly scribbles something down on one sheet and folds it up into a paper, uh, paper bird and just flings it onto the bed uh, in between the two bodies. Uh, he begins to write a second note, a bit more thorough, a bit more measured, but he folds it up uh, and uh, leaves it on the desk for now, but he begins to very quickly get himself dressed. Uh, he rushes to the, the hotel, the safe of the hotel room, starts to scoop out all the treasure that he's hoarded in there, and back into his satchel, puts the, the mobile in his satchel as well. Um, and then once he's all dressed, he takes the letter that he has written, and folds it up and puts it into his jacket. And without it saying anything, he slips out of the hotel room. And out of the hotel room, you slip down into the busy, bustling morning streets of the city of Waterdeep. You hear merchants hawking their wares, people making their way down the street toward their places of work, guards keeping on patrol. The city is alive with movement and life. And behind you, the inn where you stayed, now a place of quiet, leaving behind. But I'm sure you have another destination, don't you? Um... Luce does have a different destination. He begins to head uh, to the northward to the City of the Dead, uh, which is Waterdeep's largest cemetery. And clearly looks uh, like he's very focused and determined to do something. Um, 
and he as he goes into this cemetery slash sort of public park uh you see there's some early morning uh visitors a lot of them elderly and just doing the, the kind of the weird early morning jog uh you know the power walking through um passes by a couple families too who are out there having like a little picnic um but he he looks and scans through the some of the foliage and the trees and the, the grave sites before he finds what he's looking for and what he's been looking for apparently seems to be a circle of mushrooms and uh without consideration he just steps onto the grass uh and takes out the letter and puts it into the center before putting some grass and leaves and kind of patting it on top and uh, as he does so he just kind of mutters to himself well let's hope this one gets to you and he kind of nonchalantly gets up and walks over to uh, a like a stone bench that's maybe like a block away in this very large cemetery. He's kind of walking through the uh, walking through this area. It's very beautiful in this early hour, just observing the strange kind of balance between life and death and beauty. Um, but he sits at the bench, taking everything in, still with that sort of restless expression on his face before. He starts to rifle through his satchel again. And after a while, digging through what what only sounds like the mobile and, and different uh, coins and treasures and things like that, uh, he doesn't pull out what you might expect to be the jug, but a small black pendant. And he sighs, looking at it, kind of twirls it around in his finger a bit. So looks around some more, considering where he's at. Bites his lip, wondering if what he's about to do is the thing to do. But after those moments of consideration, he opens his palm and sees the stone still there, resting. And he cups it around his mouth. Oi, no. Oh, God. Where are you? Oh, I feel like taking a trip. Oh, I've got to get my head bent back. Bring Big Red. And uh, not expecting a response, he uh, clutches the pendant in his hand and puts it back, tucks it into the, the satchel, and kind of pulls away from uh, the bench. And as he does, he takes on the form of uh, he takes on a familiar form of Irina Koliana in the short red hair that he'd given her and begins to walk out of the cemetery. And as you do, you hesitate and for a brief moment, glance back toward the small circle of mushrooms where you left the letter, a fairy ring, as they're called in certain circles, and can't help but notice as you mosey back toward the exit gates of the cemetery that the letter is no longer there. All right. Uh, well, with that said, I'm going to go ahead and send the uh, recipient what the letter is. All right. And I think we'll leave the content of the letter up to discretion because I think for Metreon, we'll end this here. Yep. And so, as our five different individuals, companions by chance, heroes by circumstance, 
and now free to travel the roads beyond the mists once again. The sun rises on a new morning and a new dawn. A new chapter in each story beginning. But even so, as the abbot's words ring through the minds from time to time, not every chapter is an ending. Far away from Waterdeep, from the sea of fallen stars, from Neverwinter, from the domains of delight where the fairy queens dwell, there is a place. A small village just off the side of a slow, sluggish, muddy river, where bright, colorful, but scraped and faded wagons line the embankments. And in a lonely, tall tent, the canvas flaps drawn closed, and the darkness, a lone elderly woman sits, the crone craning her neck straining to see into a crystal ball that glitters on the lavender-patterned tablecloth there. A deck of cards stands beside her, and without looking, she draws three cards and sets them before her. A finely carved puppet of a man is depicted on the first, its strings vanishing into darkness as its fingers reach for a goblet. On the second, a cloud of fog descends over a dark, ancient cemetery, and a wizened, cruel-eyed tyrant crowned the helm of Devil's Horn stands beside it. The marionette, the mists, and the Dark Lord. She closes her eyes and cackles softly into herself. More than anything, she murmurs, Well, it couldn't be that easy, could it? I'll see you again soon, then, brother mine. Then when next the villagers awaken, the wagons are gone. One or two scouts attempt to follow them, but they find the tracks of the wagons abruptly vanish at the edge of the misted woods. Far away, in a distant valley, a wolf looks up to the full moon overhead, remembering its master and howls toward the sky. As the clouds and mists swirl, fog rising over the mountains, a bat chitters, its eyes flashing red, and the swarm descends to devour wide-eyed hair. When they lift, there's nothing left but bones and not a drop of blood. And in the lowest tomb of a dark and distant castle, the mists begin to creep forth from the stonework and the earth, swirling until they form the shape of a shining black coffin of finely waxed wood. Slowly, quietly, the cover slides open and pale, clawed fingers grab for the edge. And so ends the Curse of Strahd, twice bitten. Thank you to everybody who made Thank this you. possible. Thank you, Zio. Thank you, our sweet Zio. You Thank are you, sweet Zio. Everything that this strip wouldn't have happened without you. You fucking legend. And thank you, Dragna, for 
taking us on this year-plus-long journey through the mists and back again. Thank you all for coming with me. It has been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much. I've this is I've seen shit in this campaign that I didn't think were possible in a game of Dungeons and Dragons. So thank you all for making this an absolutely incredible experience. <sighs> God. Well, well, they're not happy endings, but they're endings. They're pretty good ones as far as that goes. <laughs> well, we could discuss more of those endings uh, on the next episode of After Dark, which is coming at some point. It is indeed. In fact, for those of you who would like to join us who are catching this episode in a timely manner, we will be hosting another episode of Twice Bitten After Dark. If you're not familiar, After Dark is live streamed. We'll be hanging out probably either on Twitch or YouTube premiere, look out for announcements on that. We'll be taking questions about the stream, about the campaign, about Curse of Strahd. It'll be on Saturday, February 26th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, normal twice bitten time. We certainly hope to see you there. And overall, thank you dearly to everyone for joining us on this journey. It's been a truly magical experience, and thank you all for coming along with us. Until next we meet, enjoy the sunrise, and take care.